So this Lord's Day, we are continuing our look through and teaching as it pertains to God's providence. And we are coming across a, an aspect of God's providence that more so than the other two aspects of God's providence definitely is a very difficult element to, to make, to, to explain and make clear because of all that it entails. And we're talking about God's divine concurrence. Now, before we dive into this, it's important that first and foremost, we review what we've learned so far. So as to give you the foundation so that when we dive into this topic, everything that we've learned thus far is just readily in, in your memory. First and foremost, what is providence? We've talked about this. Our confession of faith tells us in chapter five, section one, that God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Now, we noted a few weeks ago why understanding this doctrine is so important. Knowing and understanding God's providence is what helps us to see everything in light of the big picture, in light of God's eternal plan. When you understand that God providentially preserves and governs all things, then it helps to understand the why as to why certain events take place. We noted how this was Joseph's perspective when it came to him being enslaved itself. Maybe not at the immediate moment of him being enslaved, but certainly when he spoke with his brothers many, many years later. He acknowledged the sovereignty of God, the fact that what they intended for evil, God intended for good. So understanding God's providence helps to see everything in light of the big picture. We also noted how understanding God's providence was necessary and key in regards to prayer, knowing that God answers us, to walking by faith, knowing that God has everything in control. So all we got to do is be obedient to what God calls us to do. And then we noted how God's providence was essential in the securing of our redemption. We saw how God so providentially governed all things surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ. And that if he had it, all those different details that we saw where he was born, um, the census that took place, how all of that was under God's providential hand so as to secure Jesus' birth. And then also, obviously, his future death, burial and resurrection. We noted also the pitfalls to avoid, how in understanding God's providence, that wasn't an excuse for laziness, for recklessness, for carelessness, for presumption. Something that a, a bad understanding of providence can lead to if you ignore the duties that God gives you. Then we talked about, and we started to talk about over the last few weeks, the different elements or aspects as it pertains to God's providence. If you recall, I mentioned that within this understanding, this aspect of God's providence, there were three elements, divine preservation, divine government, and divine concurrence. All of these working together to ultimately bring about God's ultimate goal. Divine preservation we defined in this way. It was God's continuous work whereby he sustains and upholds all created things. Because God is creator and, not an, and, and a God who is active in all creation, we saw through the various scriptures how God does continue to uphold and sustain all things as he promised. 
And then we saw last Lord's Day, his divine government and what that meant. And we defined it in this way. It was that aspect of God's providence whereby in order to ensure that his decree is accomplished, he exercises his complete authority over all creation by directing and guiding all their actions towards his end. God, being a meticulous God and being a God that wants to ensure that his plan is what comes into place, guides all the events of man and nature and animals, for that matter, so as to ensure that his end goal is what is accomplished. So now this brings us to this element, divine concurrence, which deals specifically with God's activity in all things. But before diving into this and really getting into some of the nitty gritty here, well, two things. One, this is not going to be something that I'll be able to cover in one lesson. This is definitely going to be a two-parter. There's no way to do this doctrine justice in 20 minutes. So this will be something that in my next lesson we will also be talking about. But two things that I wanted to state before we dive into this is First and foremost, and, and the reason why I bring both of these up is because of how important and how um, deep this can get. So there's two things that I want to make sure that I mention as it pertains to this before we dive in. The first is this. It is so important as we study our theology, as we, we start to, to dive into some of the more deeper, maybe um, more nuanced aspects in theology, that that doesn't lead us to speculate on things that God has not revealed. You know, the scriptures are pretty clear. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of his law. And then we see in 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 through 5, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited, and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arrive envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. You know, as you start to study theology, you'll come across areas or topics that people try to address even though there's very little scripture to say about it. And as Christians, and as, as we are in this church cessationists, we have to be very careful to not try to answer questions that God never intended for us to ask. Oftentimes, in this life, we will not find satisfactory answers to some of these questions. Now, we've become so accustomed to wanting to know the answer to every little thing before accepting it that we forget that there are some things that we are just going to have to accept by faith. I mean, when you look through, for a perfect example, the book of Job, we, in reading the book of Job, we're told why all the events happen to Job. But you know who isn't told why all these things are happening to Job? Job. Throughout the bulk of the book, what you see is Job and his friends trying in vain to figure out why all these trials, why all these tragedies are taking place. Finally, God steps in and doesn't reveal to Job why the events took place. God puts Job in this place for speculating as he did. He was trying to pry into the secret counsels of God 
And God rebukes him for that. God basically tells Job, it's not for you to know why this took place, but it's for you to trust me and know that I am glorified in it and that you will be sanctified in this. Now, me saying this is not a call, I want to be clear, towards ignorance either. There are plenty of passages that speak. On the contrary, for example, in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, you see the writer saying this, concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who only partakes of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20, where Paul writes, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet an evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. So we see in passages like this plainly that there is a growth that we ought to have as Christians in our understanding of theology. There are plenty of things that the scriptures do reveal to us that we can and ought to study deeply. The problem with so much of these speculations is that people do it without first fully comprehending the basic things that the Bible actually reveals. And you know, it would be like, for example, someone wanting to study calculus and they don't even know how to add or subtract. Now, I'm not saying that we are, I'm not saying that what we're about to do is speculate, but this is an area that if we're not careful, we could easily become very speculative in. So I want to make sure over the next week, since Again, this is going to be a two-parter that no one starts to dive and try to pry into the secret counsels of God. The second point of caution that I want to make sure that I'm emphasizing is that we have to be patient enough to learn and humble enough to accept the hard truths contained in the Bible, whether we like it or not. You know, sometimes to truly grasp difficult truths, we have to be humble enough and patient enough to understand. You know, there are some truths, to use an analogy, there are some truths that are like eating a crispy, a crispy cream donut. It's very easy to eat and digest. It doesn't take much work or effort at all. Then there are some truths that are like beef jerky, that it takes some time to chew, munch on, and digest. And when we look at God's activity in all things, we're going to come across some very beef jerky-like verses. Passages that, if your idea of God is that of a nice old man with a long flowing beard, will make you uncomfortable. Passages that, if you are too lazy, and I mean this, too lazy to sit and meditate, not for like five minutes, but maybe for a couple hours, you won't understand. See, our, our job as Christians is to accept all the truth that the Bible speaks about. So often people try to explain away difficult texts because it doesn't fit their preconceived Disney version of God. Or they'll just call it a paradox and move on without trying to understand, ah, oh, this is just a paradox. Solomon tells us in Proverbs 18, verse 2, that a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but in expressing his own opinion. A fool 
takes no pleasure in understanding. If you study and you see that the Bible plainly teaches something, humble yourselves and accept it. Now, I say all of this as a precaution because one thing is very clear when you read the passages of the Bible is that God does indeed providentially direct and govern the actions of men, all of the actions of men. Now, this brings us to our definition of concurrence, which is this. Divine concurrence is that work of God by which he cooperates with all his creatures and causes them to act precisely as they do. John Frame, in his systematic theology, notes that God causes events on the micro level as well as on the macro level. So God, in his holy providence, not only governs and directs events to accomplish his purposes, but also directs the actions of men to accomplish his purposes as well. And here's just a couple of Bible passages that tells us this. Proverbs 16, verse 9. The mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Psalm 37, verse 23. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Proverbs 20, verse 24. Man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can man understand his way? In Jeremiah 10, verse 23, I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in a man who walks to direct his steps. If you notice, in each of these passages here, God is making it abundantly clear that he is the one that's directing man's steps. The way that man goes is ordained by God. Now, because God has an end goal in mind that he is accomplishing in order for his plan to be accomplished, God must have control over everything that could throw a wrench in his plan. Imagine with me for one second. Let's say you were responsible for babysitting a two-year-old. Let's call him Timmy. And parents gave you one task. Make sure that Timmy does not get dirty. Now, your goal is to keep Timmy from not getting dirty. Sounds simple enough, right? How would you guarantee that Timmy doesn't get dirty? I mean, you could tell Timmy not to go anywhere, but there's no guarantee that Timmy's going to listen to you. If you lose track of little Timmy for just a second, he could be off in the backyard playing with mud. If you give him food, he could spill the food accidentally. Even if he stays inside the house, he could trip up and dirty himself. In order for you to guarantee that Timmy does not get dirty, you would have to control every move that Timmy does. If you don't, Timmy could slip up and get dirty, thereby ruining your goal. Now, I want you to take that example and multiply it by a billion. You see, God's plan is way more complex and dynamic than trying to keep one little kid clean. See, in order for God to guarantee that his plan comes to pass, he must be in control of every detail or else something will come and ruin his plan. You know, a few lessons ago, I talked about the unique sets of events that took place that had to come together to ensure that Jesus Christ was born as prophesied. Now imagine, imagine if just one of those events didn't take place. Imagine if the Roman Empire had not been in control of Israel. What authority would they have had to require a census that forced 
Mary and Joseph to come from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. How much more difficult, if even possible, would it have been for them to flee to Egypt? Because remember, Egypt was part of the Roman Empire. It's not like they could have, had that not been the case, just walked into Egypt willy-nilly. Or what about Joseph's family being preserved from the severe famine? What if his brothers never sold him into slavery? Don't forget, when his brothers go to Egypt to ask for food, they didn't know the language. They were speaking in their language, and there was a translator between them. So had Joseph not gone to Egypt, he would not have learned how to speak I guess Egyptian, I don't know what the, yeah, we would not have known how to speak Egyptian itself. How would they have been able to convince Pharaoh or anyone to let them stay in the land? So God, in order to ensure that his plans are fulfilled, must be in control of everything. Now, this brings up a question that people ask. Some genuinely wanting to know others thinking that this is a, a, a shock at Christianity. Well, if God is in control of all things and even our actions, does that mean that we're puppets? Does that mean that basically we're just standing here and then God's just making us move our hands and we have nothing at, to say in regards to that? Not at all. Our confession of faith in chapter five, sections two and three, I'm gonna read this and we're gonna talk about this. They write this, although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, yet by the same providence, he ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. So even though God does indeed govern and control all things, he causes them to be enacted by means of what we call secondary, or you see some theologians like Calvin call it inferior causes. God is the primary cause of all things in that he determines what will come to pass. How those things which he determines actually come to pass is generally what we refer to as secondary causes. For example, when you look at Psalm 120, 104, verse 21, where we've read a couple, I guess the last few weeks, the young lions roar after their prey and they seek their food from God. We noted that it's not like God just drops an antelope right them in front of them. How is it that they actually get the food that they're seeking from from God? More times than not, it would be from their mother, bringing the food actually to them. God is the primary cause of them receiving the food. The cub's mother is the means by which God's determination comes to pass. Our confession and trying to explain this and trying to drive this point home, they give three categories for how secondary causes come to pass to help clarify what is meant. They say that um, they fall out according to the nature of secondary causes necessarily, freely, or contingently. So what is meant by each of these terms? So by necessarily, when they say that all things um, by second causes fall out necessarily, this refers to something coming to pass in the way that God decreed because of its very nature or how it was created. So in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 35, for example, 
Jeremiah writes this. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is its name. So the prophet mentions that God provides us with light. Why does he do it? By giving us the sun. God created the sun in such a way that its nature is that it gives off light. The sun necessarily gives off light because of how God created it. It couldn't be any other way without God supernaturally intervening, of course. So this has to do, again, with the very nature of a thing, how God creates it. Because God creates it in that way, if of necessity does that. They give the example of the moon. Well, how is it that the moon gives off the light? Well, by the sun, obviously, bouncing, or the moon reflecting the light from the sun itself. Again, these are all things that necessarily come to pass because of the very way in which it was made itself. Then you see the divines move on from necessarily to now talking about things coming to pass freely. Now, by this, what's meant is something coming to pass in a way that God decreed without forced coercion of the agent itself. And there's a couple of passages that highlight this. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, you read this. Peter says, this man, talking about Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now let's think about this for one second. No one in the church, in this church anyways, would deny that the crucifixion of Christ was foreordained by God. We know this. Yet, did God have to force Judas to betray Jesus? Did God have to force the Pharisees or the Sadducees to plot against Jesus? Were they acting contrary to their nature when they did these things? No, they had a hatred for Christ. And it was that hatred that flowed out from their corrupt heart that moved them to the acts that they did. They fulfilled God's law, but God didn't have to force them to do it. There was no coercion. And then you see another example in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 through 11. And I'll read this. Again, this is Isaiah chapter 10, if you want to follow along, verses 5 through 11. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. Yet it does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather it is its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. For it says, are not my princes all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish or Hamath like Arpad or Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images, just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? So you see in this passage, clearly God stating that he's going to send Assyria to judge Israel. But in God declaring that this was going to be the case, God didn't have to coerce Assyria to do that. They had their own motivations for attacking Israel. This is what we see here, what its purpose was. So though they fulfilled God's will, 
It was not by force on the part of God, but freely on their part. So that no one can blame God for their sins. This is part, one of the things in regards, and we're going to get to the, to the last point con contingently, but this is one of those things to where you hear people try to speak on this or talk about this, and really and truly, they're doing it because they're trying to find an excuse for their sin. They're trying to justify their sin. They're trying to place the blame on anyone else but themselves. And we'll see next week as well why this is foolish thinking. Now, the last point as it pertains to secondary causes or how God orders things to fall out according to secondary causes is he'll allow things to fall out according to secondary causes contingently. Now, what is meant by that is it's something coming to pass in a way that God decreed, although from our perspective, from our vantage point, it, it looks random. It appears random. For example, Exodus chapter 21, verse 13, we read this. But if he did not, now this is talking about murder. I know we're diving right into, or killing, but Anyways, but if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint you a place to which he may flee. So again, in this passage, this is talking about a man who accidentally kills another person. But look how Moses states it. Moses says, but God let him fall into his hand. So again, this is showing us that in an aspect in an ultimate aspect, this was decreed by God for this to take place. But in another aspect, which is why there is this appointed place for them to flee, it was accidental. So though the death was accidental from the standpoint of man, it was ordained from the standpoint of God. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 5, we see a similar thing. As when a man goes into the forest with his friend to cut wood and his hand swings the axe to cut down the tree and the iron head slips off of the handle and strikes his friend so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live. So you have the same situation again. Someone going into the forest with an axe, chopping down a tree. The axe obviously is, um, is I guess, a bad axe or whatnot. They go to um, swing, that axe head falls, hits his friend and the friend dies. This is an accidental death, just like in the previous passage. The fact that the friend gets killed, just like in the previous passage, is ordained by God. God is the ultimate cause. Man actually did the act, although in this case, it was accidental. And then we see in 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 28, and then, in verse, and then verse 34. So verse 28 says, Machai said, if you indeed return safely, the Lord has not spoken by me. And then jumping to verse 34. Now a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in a joint of the armor. So he said to the driver of the chariot, turn around and take me out of the flight, for I am severely wounded. So what we see in this passage is the prophet Micaiah stating that if King Ahab comes back safely from the battle, then Micaiah did not actually receive a word from God. Now, when King Ahab goes into battle, we see God vindicating his prophet by striking Ahab with an arrow that was shot randomly. The person shooting the arrow was not intentionally aiming for the king, yet his random shot 
was what mortally wounded Ahab. Now, the person freely shot the arrow. It wasn't like, for example, if any of you are familiar with, you know, the first Avengers movie with that, whatever, that staff that Loki has that just controls people. It wasn't as though, like, this guy auto automatically turned into some weird zombie or whatnot and just shot the bow at random. Nah, he intended to shoot the bow at random. He didn't intend to aim at anybody, but then he intended to shoot the bow at random. But that random aiming hit Ahab, which was ordained by God. Now, from man's perspective, again, it was random. But then from the perspective of God itself, it was not. You know, it's just like what it says in Proverbs 16. You know, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is for, is from the Lord. Random acts are ordained by God. Now, because God ordains things to immutably come to pass by means of secondary causes, it is foolish and dumb to claim that we are puppets in our actions. See, to claim that is to ignore how God causes things to come to pass, plain and simple. It's a cop-out. It's an excuse for you to continue in sin. Yes, God does ordain even our steps, but not in a way to where we're passive and mindless agents. We're not robots. We're not puppets. But rather, God makes all things fall into place through these secondary causes so as to ensure that we aren't mindless puppets. If you just look back to the, the confession, I didn't write it down, but chapter 3 on God's eternal decree, this is exactly what the divines are getting at here. It establishes the liberty of the will itself. Now, there is one other aspect of God's divine concurrence that we have to address. Now, we know that God controls all the actions of men in order to secure his ends. It cannot be any other way in order for God to ensure that his purposes are fulfilled. Well, we also know that men aren't sinless, and oftentimes men do things that are wicked and sinful. If God's providence extends to even the activities of men, does that mean that even the sinful things that men do are controlled by God? So this is my cliffhanger question. We're going to dive into that question in my next lesson. But to get you thinking about this, I'm going to leave you with this proverb here. It's Proverbs 16, verse 4. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose even the wicked, for the day of evil. So we will have the thrilling conclusion to this lesson. Actually, not next Lord's Day. I'm out of town next Lord's Day, so in two weeks. So try not to speculate too much, as I, as I warned. That being said, please rise as we will now recite the Ten Commandments. <laughs>